when you start to think about lament, and when you start to learn about it, you begin to see and hear lament in places that you might have missed it before. There is an undercurrent in our world, in our culture, of pain and sorrow. In fact, so much so that someone recently said that this series on lament actually caused them to hear a Christmas carol differently. And that piqued my interest. I said, what Christmas carol are you talking about? He said, well, joy to the world. I said, and what about joy to the world has lamented? He said, well, the third verse. He's right. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. We live in a world where sins and sorrows grow. We live in a world where thorns infest the ground, and we also live in a world where the hope of the Christian is that one day Christ will come and the blessings of Christ will flow over the earth as far as the curse right now is found. The Bible tells us that the far-reaching effects of the curse have been devastating. What is the curse? The Bible tells us that the curse is the effects of sin in us, around us, and embedded into the very fabric of the created order. The Bible tells us that we all have sinned We've all fallen short of God's glory, that there's no one righteous, and that the whole creation groans under the bondage of decay. And what the Bible does is it helps us to interpret what is happening in the world. You see, our world is filled with pain and tears. That's why I've said that to cry is human. Crying is what humans do, but Christian lament is different. What Christian lament does is it feels the sorrow, it feels the pain, it feels the brokenness of our humanity, but it does so not just because of the pain itself, but because it understands what lies underneath our pain and what lies above the pain or what is the ultimate solution. So a person who's a follower of Jesus laments the whole, what's underneath, the reality of the moment, and the fact that one day it's not gonna be like this forever and we want that day to come and it hasn't come yet. So Christian lament then interprets pain by grieving both the pain itself, what is underneath, and the longing for what is yet to come. So that is why to cry is human but to lament is Christian. What I aim to do today is to use lament in order to tune your heart. And my hope is that on a more regular basis, you'll pray prayers of lament, not just because you're in pain, but you'll pray prayers of lament in order to tune your heart to the things that are of God's heart. That you'll tune your heart to the brokenness of the world. In this respect, lament can be our teacher. Lament can serve to awaken us, and I think part of the reason why there are so many psalms written in regards to lament is not only to express the sorrow of the moment, but also to remind us that much of life is lived in a minor key, to remind us that something's wrong with the world, and yet God can still be trusted. Laments help us to see a broken and 
pain-filled world through a biblical category and a biblical lens. So lament isn't just about my pain, it's about our pain. It's not just about my struggles, it's about your struggles. And by praying or reading laments, what happens is our hearts are tuned to hear the pain of another, we're tuned to hear the pain of the brokenness of the world, and in many respects it serves to awaken us that, oh yes, there is a fundamental brokenness in the world. What the Book of Lamentations, I think, will do is to awaken us to the pain of what happens when God says enough. And there has been many times in history where God said to a people, to a nation, that's enough. The problem is, is if you live in a particular generation where that hasn't happened, you can think that never happens, and the reality is no, that does happen. And lament tunes our hearts to that song. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I wanna spend some time helping you to think differently about this day and tomorrow in light of a lament that I hope will tune your heart to not only perhaps what's happened in your life, but what's happening around us and what we still need to lean into as individuals and as a church because we live in a broken world with hurting people. So let me begin by talking about what it means to be an image bearer. I want to tune your heart today, and I want you to lament with me the loss and the devaluing of something that the Bible holds in very, very high regard. In fact, I want you to see with me what is underneath even the concept of life. And that is this matter of what it means to be a bearer of God's image. So what does it mean to be an image bearer? Here's six things. Number one, bearing God's image is central and unique to humanity. Hopefully you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter one. Our main text for this morning is our starting point because it identifies the creation of man and woman. It identifies not only the fact that they were created, but also why this moment is so important. We see not only that Adam and Eve were created by God, but that they were created in the image of God. In verse 24, we see that God creates living creatures according to their kind. He creates livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. So God is filling the earth with living creatures, and yet the crowning display of his creative power comes with the creation of a man and a woman. And the language around their creation is unique because they are unique from the rest of creation. Look at verse 26. Every single one of these verses are important. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice our, the triune God has, is creating. And he says, let us make them in our image and in our likeness. So humans are given a unique and exclusive image-bearing quality that nothing else in the created order has. And let us, let them have dominion over fish of the sea, over birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So dominion goes along with this idea of image. Image and dominion go hand in hand. There's something special about humanity and it's connected to this image of God resulting in dominion. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice the emphasis. That repetition is to 
make a higher level of emphasis on this idea that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. So although there is difference between male and female, although there is difference even in terms of biology and difference even in function, the reality is there is a beautiful equality of value so that man, men and women are of equal value. They both possess the image of God. I possess no more image of God than what my wife does. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve are commanded to be fruitful and multiply, they're to fill the earth, they're to have dominion. In other words, they are to do in their world what God has done in his. They represent him on planet Earth. And they represent him not only in what they do, more importantly, they represent him in who they are as human beings. So Genesis 1 then establishes a very important foundation, that God's image is central and unique to humanity. It identifies that God is the creator, mankind is unique from the rest of creation, and that uniqueness is connected to this idea of what it means to be made in God's image. Secondly, the image of God makes human life valuable even after the fall. Take your Bible, go over to Genesis chapter nine and verse six. If you know the story of Genesis, soon after Adam and Eve were created, they ate of the forbidden fruit. They fell, sin came into the world, they were kicked out of the garden, and it wasn't just a few years later in terms of their um, ruling and reigning that brokenness takes over when their own son kills his brother. And so we have murder that's entered into the first family. All of that to show us that humanity is broken at its core. And in Genesis 7, in eight, we have the story of the flood, where God decimates the world in judgment because of its sinfulness. And when Noah comes out of the ark, in chapter nine and verse five and six, God gives him a command, and it's connected to life. He says, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. For every, from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So, God establishes an ethical framework about murder. That murder is not only wrong, but an appropriate punishment for murder is the capital punishment of the person who's taken someone else's life, and you might say, well, why? Why is that the case? And Genesis 9, 6 answers it, because God made man in his own image. The fact that man is made in the image of God means not only that murder is wrong because God has declared it to be wrong, but it's wrong because there is something intrinsically valuable about the life of another human being. And that value of humanity is unique from the rest of creation. So, if you have a dog in your house, as we do, our dog's name is Libby, and she is not the smartest animal in the world. In fact, in terms of the dominion that I have over her, it is significant and relatively easy, and often frustrating. 
because she's just not all there. She's sweet. If I didn't close the door in my bedroom, she'd be sleeping on my bed in this very moment. My kids love her. But you need to understand that for all of the affection that I have or my kids have for our dog, she's not made in the image of God. I may love her, I may have affection for her. In fact, in some cases, I may love her more than I love some of you. But the fact of the matter is, (laughs) is you're more valuable than she is. And so therefore, euthanizing a dog is worlds apart from euthanizing a human. Why? Because a human is made in the image of God. That's why. There's something fundamentally different about a human being. Third, the image of God then provides the foundation for human relationships. Let's go all the way in the New Testament. Let's go to the book of James, chapter three. In the New Testament, we see a further extension and an application of this idea of the image of God. James 3 is providing warning about how we use our tongues and how we talk to one another, and in particular, about the problem of cursing. In James 3, he essentially says we should curse other people. But do you know why? James 3 tells us, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse, then he says this, people who are made in the likeness of God, and at the end he says, these things ought not to be so. So why is cursing wrong? Why is cursing at somebody wrong? It's not just wrong because it's mean, or because you hurt their feelings. Cursing is wrong because doing so violates the very sanctity of God's imprint on a human being. So it's not just wrong because of its unkindness, it's wrong because it violates something that God has declared to be sacred. And so whether it's a physical assault with murder or whether it's a verbal assault, human beings are not permitted to treat the image of God as if image isn't important, as if it isn't sacred, and if it isn't, as if it isn't honorable. Image is something that God has put within humanity, something that is beyond all of us, and something that we are commanded to respect. The image of God provides for the foundation for human relationships. Your relationships with other human beings must be governed by this theological reality. We are all made in God's image. Number four, the image of God is ultimately restored through Christ. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me understand, help you understand that There's something broken within you, broken even in all the goodness of what's in you, that there's an imprint within you that's different than the rest of the created order, and even after the fall, in Genesis chapter three, that image is still there, but it's been marred. And the hope of the gospel is that Christ has come to set in motion the restoration of the image of God in us by removing the presence of sin, by declaring it to be forgiven, and making us entirely new. And Christians are those who are both promised this reality and who are able to taste it partially even now. There's something wrong with humanity. And the purpose of the cross is to set in motion 
a redemptive process by which sinful human beings will eventually be restored to the full image and likeness of God and his glory. Let me give you a few texts that tell us this. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, here it is, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, it doesn't mean that Christians are more valuable, but it does mean that they can see something and they can taste something beyond their broken humanity now and that which points to the full restoration of this image of God in us in the future. Part of the reasons why Christians lament is they know what's underneath the pain and they long for the full restoration. Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So something is happening in the partial restoration that has come through Christ, that there's this mindset that's being renewed and there's something within the heart of a believer that reflects the beautiful image of his or her creator. Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then Ephesians 4, 23, and be renewed, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what happens is that in the New Testament, these verses help us to see that the gospel seeks to solve the problem of the image of God or the marred image that we all have. And the trajectory of the gospel, the trajectory of the story in the Bible, is that God's aim is to restore that image that sin has marred. And what happens then is Christianity interprets humanity by understanding what lies underneath our problems and also understanding what our ultimate hope is. And so lament is both the curse is everywhere and I can't wait till the blessings of Christ come. We don't just mourn the pain. We mourn the fact that pain is in the world and pain is everywhere and Christ will one day come and won't you come now, Lord Jesus, and restore everything that's so fundamentally broken. Number five, there is a God-given and inherent value in every person because of the image of God. So this is an implication, and I have two of them, this is one of them. To be made in the image of God means more than just human beings are creative. If I were to ask you, what does it mean that you're made in the image of God? Some of you would say, well, it means that I have a will. It means that I can think. It means that there's a ruling capacity that I'm, that I'm able to lead or able to love. And while all those things are true, that's not the full picture of what it means to be an image bearer. Because to be an image bearer means that there is a, a metaphysical reality connected to our humanity. In other words, that we are made in the image of God and God has imprinted upon us an ontological reality, a, a beingness. So you're made in the image of God not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Or better, 
you are an image bearer because God has declared you to be an image bearer, because he has set you to be valuable. He has said that you're valuable, and when God says something about either something that's wrong or something that's right, that declaration then becomes definitive. For instance, have you ever thought, why is lying wrong? I mean, What's inherently wrong about who who established lying to be wrong? And the answer would obviously be that God did. One of the most foundational concepts that I learned in ethics class in seminary was this. X is good because X is willed by God. Or you could put it this way. X is not good because X is declared as not good by God. So as creator, God defines morality. He says what is good and what is not. And when God declares it to be so, it is so. So why is lying wrong? Because God has defined it to be, to be wrong. As it applies to image, human life is valuable because God made us in his image. Human life has the imprint of God because God has placed it there and that reality is directly connected to our being, not just what we do. That's important because the culturally dominant view of humanity is very tied to function. People are valuable in our world based upon what they do or the value that they add. And if they don't have the same kind of function as everyone else, or if they have a lower level function than others, or if they have seemed to have a a, a function that we can't define as, as, as all of that valuable, then they are therefore defined as less than valuable. Because in our culture, function equals value. And is it any wonder? If I'm right that value is connected to believing in a creator, that image is connected to understanding the problem of sin, and the combination of those two in connection with the beautiful story of redemption means that we know where history is headed. If you have no appreciation for God as your creator, no appreciation for the problem of sin, and you don't know where history is headed in terms of his redemptive purpose, it's no wonder that you would value people based upon their function, because what else do you have? All you have is what's right in front of you. You're gonna have a pragmatic, functional view of humanity where the image of God is not going to have any significance if you don't believe in God. It will have no significant impact if you don't believe and long for the repairing of that image of God. And as a result, the dominant cultural belief combined with sort of a works-based mentality is this, value equals function. And one of the things that I hope comes out of this message today is that you not only see that, but you lament it. And as you lament it, it gives you ears to hear it in ways you've not heard it before, because it's everywhere. Number six, Christians, of all people on earth, ought to value life in all its forms. You know, as I've looked at this subject, as I've read about this and thought about this, it just, it's increased my burden and my conviction that if there's anybody on earth who ought to 
be champions for life in all of its forms, and I'll talk about some of the expressions of this in a moment, but if there's anybody who ought to be able to get this, it ought to be the people who understand what's underneath life and what's above life. People understand what's going on in terms of the curse, who long for the blessings of Christ to flow down upon all of the created order, who long for the restoration of all things and long for Christ to come and rule and reign over all things. These are the kind of people who should lament when the world doesn't think this way or lament when the cultural forces blow another direction. Of all people on earth, Christians ought to be the one who get this and get it so deeply in them. We ought to lament, brothers and sisters, when life is diminished or destroyed or disparaged. So those who understand what lies underneath and those who understand what lies beyond our humanity ought to celebrate our intrinsic God-ordained value as human beings, and we ought to lament its loss. And I hope that that kind of lament might be able to wake us up to the reality that there is something wrong with the world. That we can, in our lament, even being be woken up out of our slumber because there are things that are so common now in our world and our culture that we've forgotten that they're so wrong. We've forgotten how offensive they are to the image of God. We've forgotten how easy it is to be sort of wooed into sleep in regards to the fact that function is not the definition of value, image is, and the implications are stunning. That's why I think lament in this respect serves to tune the heart for us to see the world as God sees it. It serves, lament serves to be a teacher, a wake-up call, to be reminded about what we really believe. Lament in that respect can serve to be incredibly helpful. So let me apply this to three areas. Abortion, racism, and a lack of concern for those who have disabilities. I could apply it to multiple other areas. We'll just pick these three. Number one, abortion. It is estimated that there are 4,400 babies aborted every day in the United States. Just try and get your head around that number. To make it more practical, last year in the state of Indiana, 8,118 babies were aborted. And those are just the ones that we know about, that were registered. In the city of Indianapolis, bringing it closer to home, 5,218 babies. And to bring it even more close in proximity, on 86th in Georgetown, at the Planned Parenthood, there were 2,973 babies aborted last year. That's, what, five miles from here? I drive by that facility all the time. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, it's believed that over 56 million babies have been killed. The challenge is, is I've never lived in a world where Roe v. Wade wasn't the established law of the land. So for me, it's normal. But it's not. 
And while it's encouraging to know that abortion rates are in decline, they've declined about 12% since 2010, the fact that so much innocent blood has been shed on our land is tragic and devastating, and I wonder how long until the Lord says, that's enough. And he has, in history, said, that's enough. And just because it hasn't happened in my long 44 years of living doesn't mean that it might not happen in my lifetime. See, lament helps to remind you of that. But the problem isn't just abortion. The problem also are the effects. For every baby that's aborted, there is a woman and perhaps a man who every day deals with the regrets and the shame of a decision to abort a child. As I lamented this subject, this whole arena was opened up to me and I came to understand the number of people within the church and frankly the number of people, but imagine even within our own church, who your history would include the sin of abortion. 70% of those who have abortions profess to have some kind of religious background. So I want you to know if you're here today and that's been in your past, we're lamenting the problem of abortion and I want you to know, brother or sister, where sin abounded, God's grace abounds all the more. I want to assure you of God's love, of his compassion, I want to assure you of his forgiveness And as we lament, and even as you lament, that your heart can be tuned to be reminded, God, apart from your mercy, I have nothing. Life is valuable, and life begins at conception because a two-celled zygote bears the image of God. Because that image is connected to being not functionality. So even if that small cluster of cells couldn't live on its own outside of the womb, or if it has no body parts, or if it has no functionality in the world, it is still image. And why? Because image does not relate to function. Image is divine imprint. It is something beyond us. It is what God has declared over male and female, men and women. So God has declared over humanity. So church, I want to invite you to lament with me the millions of children who were never born. Let us lament the shedding of innocent blood in our land. Let us lament the moment when a mother decides that her body is more valuable than a baby's body. Let us lament the trafficking of convenience and expediency. Let us lament the trafficking of body parts of aborted children. Let us lament the spin language that makes abortion pro-choice. Let us lament the pain and regret that some people feel every day because of that story in their past. And let us lament a culture for which this issue has become far too common and much too tolerable. Let's use lament to tune our heart the problem of the devaluing of God's image. Number two, racism. 
The devaluing of image happens not only in the womb, but it also happens when in culture one person thinks or feels or acts as if another person is less valuable than he or she is simply based upon their culture, their ethnicity, or the color of their skin. What happens in racism is that a person comes to believe either overtly or subtly that there's something superior about their race than another, as if they bear more image of God than someone else. And in so doing, something other than image becomes a primal motivator, be it fear or ignorance or control or greed. Any number of issues begin to eclipse this biblical value of what it means to be an image bearer. In 1965, Martin Luther King preached a message in Atlanta, Georgia, and he linked this image of God and racism together. Here's what he said. The image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness, it gives him worth, it gives him dignity, and we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man, and this is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. There's something beautiful and something important about this theological reality that's underneath unity in the midst of diversity. When we talk about racial reconciliation, it's not just right because wrong things have happened and because there's still barriers that exist between us is right because underneath it is something that's worth to be celebrated, which is the beauty of the image of God. And my question is, when you encounter somebody who's of a different race or a different background or a different ethnicity, do you first see that or do you see image first? Are your eyes trained to see image or are your eyes trained to see race? Doesn't mean that race or backgrounds aren't important. Doesn't mean that we need to sort of lower all differences as if there's not any difference among us, but it means that there's something that unites us that's even greater than our differences or our histories or where we've come from, and that being the image of God. And it seems to me that if this image of God is a theological reality found within the scriptures, and if the church loves the Bible and loves those kinds of theological realities, and if we believe that the gospel is that thing which can unite us, then the church, and specifically this church, should be a place of beautiful, Jesus-magnifying oneness. Or to say it bluntly, beloved, if we can't figure it out in the church, then who in the world is going to? Those who have tasted the beauty of the gospel should be inclined to be more compassionate, more forgiving, more intentional in diversity, and more passionate for racial reconciliation than anyone else. We, of all people, should be willing to go there because we value what it means to be an image bearer. So let us lament the scourge of racism that has been a part of our nation's history. Let us lament that it was only 60 years ago that in certain sections of our country, buses and schools and restaurants and bathrooms were segregated. 
Let us lament hurtful words and oppressive behavior and community rejection. Let us lament the distorted value of what is really valuable. Let us lament the pain that still lies under the surface. Let us lament the walls of separation, the misunderstanding and the guardedness that we still feel. And let us lament the cultural forces, the economic realities and the institutional bias that exists in reality and in perception. And let us long for the day when, as Paul said in Romans, we will with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because we love and cherish the beauty of what it means to be made in the image of God. My point is this. If life is important, then those who understand what's underneath it and what's above it ought to lament the fracturing of human life in all its forms. And then finally, Let me apply this to those who have disabilities. This is different than racism and abortion, and I trust that it's obvious because racism and abortion are sins, but having a disability isn't. But I want to include it because this is relevant to this issue of bearing God's image. Image is about a divinely given value, not about function. And by definition, a person with a disability or a family affected by a disability have a function that is less than ideal. That's why it's called a disability. It means that you have functional challenges or that you're functionally different. And while that may be true, a disabled person from a biblical standpoint is no less valuable. Why? Because their value does not exist in their function. Their value exists in the fact that they were made in the image of God. And therefore, the ultimate value of that person, even in their disability, rests on the imprint of God on them. And therefore, I say to you, who should understand this better than a Christian? Nobody. If we love the image of God, then we ought to love the preservation of life and keep the womb sacred. We ought to love reconciliation between people and love one another despite cultural and ethnic differences and as well we ought to love one another despite developmental differences. We should see a person who's been made in the image of God and should celebrate the imprint of God that is upon them and that imprint surpasses any gap that they have in function. And if, if they're a follower of Jesus, we ought to long for the day when disabilities will be no more. So let us lament the brokenness in the created order that causes disabilities. Let us lament the frustrating limitations and the daily challenges that are a part of a disabled person's life. Let us lament the rejection that they have felt and seen. Let us lament the distance that a disability needlessly creates between people because they are different. And let us lament the lack of concern and sensitivity that our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers so often feel, even, yes, within the church. So to bear God's image means that there's something very unique, very special, something about the very being of God in all human beings. I could apply this to orphans, 
to immigrants, the elderly, the incarcerated, the poor. I could go on and on, and so should you. And figuring out in your world, with this lens of image, as you lament its loss and its devaluing in our culture, where has God placed you to be a voice of hope, a voice of grace, a voice of biblical truth in the midst of a world that doesn't value who people are apart from what they can actually do or what they actually mean to me? In the midst of all of this cultural mess, it seems to me that the church ought to be a bright light of people who understand what's underneath and they understand what's above and they lament in order so they can serve and love and give of themselves generously because they love the beauty of what it means to be made in the image of God. So a Christian sees the thing underneath the thing. It sees the thing that's above the thing. And when it comes to humanity, Christians see something, at least we should. They see something different when they see a human. And if we don't feel what we should, then I would suggest that we ought to use the grace of lament to tune our hearts, to long for the blessings of Christ to flow as far as the curse is found, to lament the ways in which human life is devalued in order to tune our hearts to hear and to sing the tune that God sings over the human race through the gospel. We want the blessings of Christ to flow as far as the curse is found. Would you pray with me? Father, we feel the weight of this message today and there is so much that's broken in the world and we acknowledge and Lament how easy it is for us to stop hearing and stop feeling and stop realizing the effects of the devaluing of life, the effects of barriers that exist in terms of race, how uncomfortable it is when someone is different than us and we can't see beyond what we should and so we lament this cultural reality and we ask you to give us new eyes and new ears. Now church, while we're in an attitude of prayer, I just want to give you a moment quietly before the Lord to lament. What is it that you need to say to the Lord today? What is it that your heart needs to be tuned in? What do you need to pray over? What do you need to pray about that maybe you haven't prayed about in a long time, and we're just gonna give you a few moments, and I'll pray at the end, but for you just to talk to the Lord and lament so that your heart might be tuned to him and for him and for the world. So take some time right now. Father in heaven, thank you that you hear our laments for our own pain. Thank you for the place in the Bible where that lament is not only helpful, it's allowed. 
And we also thank you for communal laments, moments even like this when we're able to have hearts that are more attuned to what's happening around us because of the kind of prayers that we would pray. Lord, the curse is a curse. We're so weary and tired of its effects. And yet, it becomes so normal that we forget about the presence of brokenness in the world and we are not aware of it in its full sense unless it directly affects us. So use, I pray today, to awaken us to the groan of creation and make us a people whose hearts are big, whose minds are full, and our lives are used for the advancement of your kingdom, even because of today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.